Welcome to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. It was May 4th, and that is why we basically had no other chance than to talk about Star Wars even though I don't think either of us is a particular Star Wars geek, right? No, I'm in a weird position because I know an embarrassing amount about Star Wars, but I don't even, I wouldn't call myself a super fan or anything. I just, I don't know if it's uh, growing up in a family that loves movies or what, but I just happen to know a lot about it. <laughs> so, is it just something like knowledge you absorbed throughout your socialization? I think so. Growing up, being interested in science fiction, like Star Trek as well, and comic books and video games, you kind of have no choice but to just osmose it as you engage with other things. So it's a, it's definitely a, a common language, I think, amongst nerds and geeks. And I just picked up a lot of it throughout the years. I guess there are also things about Star Wars that are just so culturally pervasive that everyone knows it. Like, of course, uh, the th the intro theme, for example, the Star Wars theme, or this like opening where the text flows from the bottom to the top across the screen. Oh yeah, all of these things, including of course, like no, I am your father. Uh, no, that's impossible. <laughs> no, <Yeah. laughs> it's <laughs> so culturally iconic that it's basically there's no way to to not know that to not be aware of it and. I think that I always knew these things, and I've had for a long time, though, not even seen the Star Wars movies. It was only when someone came to me and said, like, you really should watch these movies that I did, or like the, the first trilogy and then the prequel trilogy. Mm. I also watched, uh, like, I think Rogue One or something, like one of the later one ones. Of the ones. Yeah. yeah, but I have never really felt any particular relationship to Star Wars. That's what makes my perspective at it's so curious because i have nothing against it i think it's a perfectly enjoyable part of of popular culture it's these films are not boring and the games most of the games that we're going to talk about they're not bad games and they're not boring at all but i never feel drawn to things because they are star wars like it has never had any kind of particular appeal to me if you know what i mean i no, i understand exactly and i think there's a there's a certain feeling that I'm not the first to say this, but I do think that Star Wars for a lot of people is the first world like that, where they feel like I want to live there and, or I want to, I want to tell stories in this sandbox. And that's why I think a lot of these games are successful. I never really felt that draw either. Although I've, I think I've enjoyed every Star Wars game I've ever played. And there's so, so very many of them. <laughs> We're not going to talk about all of them, but, uh, I, I think it's, it's one of those early, if it gets you early, it sticks with you for a long time. I guess that's just it. Part of socialization. It was a joke at the beginning, but when I think about it, of course, many people that are of our age now, they've been accustomed with Star Wars since their childhood, basically. They grew up with it, and the franchise grew up with them, and so over time it just becomes an integral part of your existence, kind of. And and you can't uh, you can't turn around in public without there being some kind of Star Wars reference. I think <laughs> exactly. It's a little bit yep. difficult to get away from. But before we get into this, 
too deeply, I have to mention that if you like this show and if you want to make us want to help us make it happen, then you can support us by becoming a Studying Pixels Plus member. Because yes, you can get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. And yes, you can also get a beautiful sticker that says, I am studying pixels. And you will also get monthly plus episodes. Now, some of them really are catering to studying and research and they can actually help you. Others are more like cultural deep dives. And this month, in May 2022, we did one on the tragic death of the PS Vita, a beloved handheld which both Dan and me have enjoyed very much, basically until it exhaled its very last breath, I think. (laughs) Yes, rest in peace, the PS Vita. Rest in peace, PS Vita. We've made an entire episode about that. If you want to check it out, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The reason we're doing this, as Stefan mentioned in the, in the beginning, is we've just passed May the 4th, so may the 4th be with everybody. May it be. May it be. (laughs) And also, uh, the Skywalker saga, the Lego Star Wars game came out, I say recently, a couple weeks ago now, but it's still in, uh, in, in popular thought. So we wanted to talk about the history of Star Wars video games, uh, and looking at two examples in particular, because there is a long, long history that I'm going to kind of summarize in a, in a short while. But before we get into that, Stefan, have you, so you're engagement with the movies is you've seen them and you've you've had some enjoyment with them have you played any of the star wars video games <laughs> i i have i think when i was maybe 16 or 17 years old i can't quite remember i played a star wars jedi knight game it was like a mm. a first person game though you could also switch into third person and you would su- swing around a laser sword but you could also fire guns and it would be like pew yeah. pew pew uh, <laughs> I think, as far as I can recall, that was a pretty cool video game. I don't have any negative memories of it. I think I enjoyed probably a whole summer with that particular video game. There's a really cool appeal to them. I think even if you're not super invested in Star Wars, it's it's a fun, it's a space fantasy with laser swords and guns. How can you go wrong, right? <laughs> any game that you're playing. It's exactly that. I did not choose this game because... It was a Star Wars game because at the time I had not really watched the films and I was not engaged in it at all. But I think a friend of mine, 
that like you really want to check out this game. It's cool, it's fun, and you can have like actual laser sword battles that are almost like in the film that you haven't seen. And I was like, <laughs> wow, cool. <laughs> I'm gonna check that out. And that it all sounds it, great. It was, it was very satisfying. <laughs> it was a pretty good game. It was, I think, a moment where I felt like for the first and probably only time connected to this entire idea of Star Wars and the force, which you could use as special abilities, it lends itself so well to a video game it does doesn't it there yeah something about i mean the force is basically magic psychic powers and so yeah. being able to lift things and move things and you know uh convince people of of doing what you want them to things like this it, it does it it makes for a really great role-playing experience and the first game that i remember playing i don't think i played one before this was knights of the old republic on classic uh yeah and there's a funny story behind it because I had an Xbox when I was a kid, but my parents were, it, it took a lot of convincing to get M-rated games. So I actually had Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic before I had Halo on the Xbox. So this was a game that I think because my parents were familiar with Star Wars, they said, oh, that'll be fine. It's Star Wars, you know, and then in we go into this deep moral quandary of Knights of the Old Republic, but we'll get into that. <laughs> It's Star Wars. It's for kids. Yeah. Nothing. What could go wrong in Star what Wars? What could go wrong? But isn't it also <laughs> the case that like 80% of the video games that I see that have a Star Wars logo on them are Lego games? Like they do a lot of them. <laughs> they do a lot of them. I don't, I don't think it's 80% because I'm looking through the, uh, looking through the Wikipedia, uh, games. <laughs> that exists? <laughs> games article. Wikipedia? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll get I'll get into it. Of course it, it is. <laughs> yeah, of course, course it does. <laughs> but looking at that, I think uh there's hundreds of Star Wars video games. And I think the Lego games are some of the more well known ones because of the crossover with Lego, because who who doesn't love Lego? Um but man, there are so many of them and, and maybe we can just we can kind of jump in now. I want to talk a little bit about the history of Star Wars video games, which is at about as old as Star Wars itself and almost about as old as video games themselves. Yeah. The very first Star Wars game that I could find was in 1982. It was a game adaptation, and I use that word very loosely, of The Empire Strikes Back. And it was released on the Atari and the Intellivision. And from what I gather, it was basically just one of the opening scenes, the Hoff battle, where you're fighting the big... ATAT dog walker things. In ah, a I know that. Where this rope is tied around its legs and then yeah. it like slowly falls over. Yeah. And it was, this game was maybe like all Atari games, notorious for how impossible it was. <laughs> like it was a game that you couldn't figure out and it took forever to play. But that's kind of how it all started. And I just want to shout out really quickly because we're going to talk about a lot of different aspects of Star Wars here. But one thing I want to say, I have a lot of respect for George Lucas. I think he's he's gone through the ringer with fans and critics alike in the past couple of decades, but he, I think, is a real visionary director, and also part of his creativity comes down to his, uh, funny enough, his business sense, because he was always pushing uh, the limits of, of filmmaking, but he was looking outside of filmmaking, too, when it came to Star Wars, and when... In the early 80s, these games started coming out. They were all created under this umbrella company called Lucasfilm Games. And eventually, that company 
kind of branched out and became known as LucasArts, which is how people probably know them today. And LucasArts was, it was a little bit broader because it included Industrial Light and Magic, which was the effects company um, that made the movies look like they did. Um, and a number of other kind of subsidiary companies that just used the Star Wars brand to further creative endeavors. And they were also LucasArts, the ones that are, in my mind, associated primarily with these like uh, well-renowned point-and-click adventures, such as Indiana Jones, uh, Monkey Island. I think even here the uh, the, the tentacle, the, <laughs> the the world the tentacle took over. No, um, the, the day of the tentacle. I, oh, yeah, the day of the world the tentacle took over. <laughs> yes, the day the tentacle Which, took over the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it grew tiny arms like. Like in the intro sequence, you know, and then it takes over the world. Yeah. Oh man, I didn't put that one on the list, but yeah, you're so right. Well, I, I love, I love that you bring those up because yes, LucasArts, it should be said, they weren't just Star Wars. It was really, it was this uh, recognition of video games as this really creative medium. And they told all of these kind of wacky stories. Like you mentioned the secret of Monkey Island. LucasArts has... Uh, it's kind of notorious for having a very strong voice when it comes to these games. Um, kind of funny, sarcastic, deep storytelling, focus on characters. Um, I mean, it's it's what you think when you think of old Star Wars and Indiana Jones. They're just these simple stories with likable people with really funny lines that you remember. Yeah, and I think it speaks to, as you mentioned before, the creative power behind George Lucas that even the name LucasArts nowadays in people that are at least our age and maybe a bit older, it immediately summons an image and maybe an entire nostalgic uh, influx of memories when it comes to games and films and everything. It's all tied around this kind of, yeah, LucasArts, Lucas production. I don't know. It's all tied around George Lucas. Like he has influenced an entire generation to such a tremendous degree. Absolutely. When I was looking into the kind of history of LucasArts, which is a vast history that I encourage everyone to look into, especially if you're a fan of film or of video games or comic books, <clears throat> it was this, basically, I mentioned that, you know, it feels like uh, you're a kid in a sandbox, and that's what it was. It, Star Wars is a vast universe with the idea of the Force, but also things like bounty hunters and you know, these uh, slummy underworlds and, you know, the, the Jedi Order and political intrigue, all kinds of different things exist in this universe. And so LucasArts kind of made it, made it a point to expand what Star Wars was known for. So it's not just you're following Luke Skywalker in, the, in these movies, you're looking outside of the world of the movies into times before or times after or different parts of the galaxy so that you could really experience all kinds of different things. You know, you could, you could play a game where you're flying a spaceship or you're in a, an X-Fighter. I'm sorry, an X-Wing. <clears throat> you could, uh, as you mentioned, play the Jedi Academy games where you're learning about what happened after the movies, right? All kinds of interesting stories that were being told that weren't confined to the films themselves. And that's what you meant when you said that George Lucas was open to let others contribute and expand upon his creation, which is 
basically opening it up to the degree that there are lots more stories that can be told all around it. It's not just this one thing that is then, okay, so this is my thing, but rather it has all kinds of openings where it is just made so that other things can dock on and expand upon it. Exactly. And I think maybe an easy way to understand this is that when we're talking about Star Wars games, um, we're not talking about a video game adaptation of a film necessarily. There are, there are plenty of those, but these are games that use Star Wars as kind of the creative label to tell different kinds of stories in this world that George Lucas created. It was a really cool thing. So what I'd like to look into today, because as I mentioned, there's hundreds of these video games, so oh, we're yeah. not going to look at, we can't go into all of them, but I wanted to look at two games that I think are distinct examples of two very different eras of Star Wars video games. The first game that I want to look at comes from the LucasArts era, and it's one that I've already mentioned. It's Knights of the Old Republic, this role-playing game. The second one that I want to look at comes from the Disney era of things, after Disney bought out Lucasfilm, and that's Jedi Fallen Order. They're two really great games that I think tell very interesting stories, not just within the world of Star Wars, but in the kind of meta around who owned it and what the creative principle behind video game production was. So, are you familiar with Knights of the Old Republic? Yeah, vaguely. I wrote my master's thesis about moral choices in video games. Oh, yeah. And I remember that one of the key stepping stone of moral choices, moral complexity, moral ambiguity in video games is it, always referred back to Knights of the Old Republic because there you could actually choose between the dark side and the, what is it? Is it? It's not the bright side, is it? <laughs> no, the light side. Although it the is, light side. <laughs> I, like the, I like the bright side. <laughs> <laughs> the, so the bright side and the not so bright side, the dark yeah, side, that's happy right. <laughs> and sad, you know, yeah. classic, classic distinction. And this kind of idea that you make choices and according to the choices you make you're gonna advance uh, another like skill tree and re build relationships with other factions i think that there's there's something interesting about it because star wars has that built-in moral framework to it that's really understandable and because the f the force is a it, it's something that's talked about in the films and it's a big part of the movies obviously um there's something about the choices between light and dark side that make more sense inherently than say a game like fable where it's just like, Oh, I'm, I'm very good or I'm very evil. <laughs> that There's something like, well, there's a, not necessarily a religion, but there's a, an, an esoteric force literally behind your choices in the star Wars world. Yeah. It's a mythological framework that basically gives every single choice that you make in these games but also that every character makes in the part of the wider part of the star wars universe a kind of meaning and a kind of reference point and i think what was so interesting about knights of the old republic is that it it worked in these frameworks not just the force but in the world the of star wars so i i think it's a really great example of this lucas arts era because like i mentioned there was so much Star Wars media. So back before Disney bought out Lucasfilm, there were the films and then there was everything else. And everything else was called the expanded universe. This was novelizations, books, comics, video games, music, all of these things that existed outside of Lucas's own movies. 
that to Lucas and to everyone else involved in Star Wars creativity, it was understood that these were all part of the world, right? These were all stories that were being told in a galaxy far, far away. And so sometimes they would deal with Luke Skywalker and his friends, but a lot of the time, most of the time, it would deal with people that weren't in the movies or were only mentioned briefly, and we would see their stories fleshed out. The smallest character would get an entire book written about them. And in that book, you would see different planets created by whoever wrote the book. You would see different ideas. You know, you would come up with ideas like, what if there was a, what if there was a, a, a character that was a bounty hunter who he's mentioned in the movie, he's a, he's a robot. What was his life like? And you get to see how he became existentially aware in two seconds, you know, <laughs> or just these great ideas that would clearly somebody who saw the film said, I want to know about that. I'm going to write a story about it. But isn't that pretty much what fan fiction is? Yeah, it is weird. It's, it's like the expanded universe. If you, even today, if you look back on it, it feels like legitimized fan fiction in yeah. a lot of ways. Yep. While it's fan fiction, it is legitimized. So it's integrated into it, which is in most cases, rather an exception that fan fiction is actively integrated into the, into the, let's say, canonical lore. Really, when you look at it, I'm not sure if this is exactly what happened, but you look at it and you say, all right, I, I want to write a book about a, a person who steals other people's like force abilities. And then you would just, you would go to Lucasfilm or Lucas you, would, you, would, like, you would call up George yeah. Lucas and he'd be like, how much? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That sounds good. Can we make toys out of it? Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's my George Lucas. Um, but <laughs> I think, so all, all of that is kind of preamble. Knights of the Old Republic was this great idea because in the, in the movies, in the prequel films, it's mentioned that either a th thousands of years ago or thousands of generations ago, it's not clear, <laughs> but it's said that the Jedi were, you know, they, they ran the Republic and th this beautiful old Republic where politics worked like it should. And things were, things were beautiful and glorious. And the thing about star Wars is as we look into different times that people kind of mythologize in the world, we realize nothing was ever perfect. Things always had their problems. And it turns out uh, politics is always messy. And whenever you have an order of religious zealots like the Jedi, things are going to get kind of hairy. <laughs> and Knights of the Old Republic tells a story set 4,000 years before the films. And it's about a lot of the same things, a lot of the same themes of people coming from nothing and, you know, trying to do what's right. Or if you decide to make darker moral choices turning to the dark side and, and falling into fascistic tendencies and the kind of allure of power. It was a really intricate role-playing game put together by the folks at Bioware. And I think really they cut their teeth on RPGs and moral systems by doing this Knights of the Old Republic game. There's a lot of connective tissue in the Mass Effect series from these old Knights of the Old Republic games. That's probably also why Knights of the Old Republic is of such profound significance because it is not just a license tie-in where someone basically said like, okay, we're just going to capitalize on that Star Wars franchise, but where there was a genuine intrigue for this idea, for this video game, for developing an 
in itself very interesting and fun role-playing game. An expansive one that maybe even a person like I am would play, even though I don't have any idea about Star Wars, and suddenly you're sucked into it, and you're part of the Star Wars universe, and you suddenly you attend, attend some kind of fan conventions. <laughs> <laughs> you dress up. In a Chewbacca costume. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think you, you raise a really great point, because another, another cool thing that this game did was, so you, not only were you, was your character a fish out of water, it was a character that you created. He or she didn't have a backstory necessarily. You, you came up with it. But the other cool part was that because it took place so long removed from the films, you didn't really need to know anything about Star Wars going into it. It's a game that you can enjoy the story of, even if you're not familiar with the films, because the themes of Star Wars are not super complex. It's good and evil and cyclical power struggles. That's it. And isn't that a dream come true for any proper fan that you can create your own character, that you can maybe recreate yourself in that world and become part of this creation that you have loved and admired for such a long time. And I think a dream for developers too, because yeah. you look at a company like Bioware and it's almost like, okay, we're going to, so I'm, I'm going to get into this in a minute, but back in the day, it wasn't like you were being handed the reins of Star Wars. You were just, you had the license, you could tell a story, but you had kind of the comfort of the Star Wars universe to work in. So you could try different things out and experiment. And if it went well, maybe you get to make a Mass Effect afterwards, you know, or a Dragon Age. So it was a great way for developers to cut their teeth. And we wouldn't have Mass Effect if it weren't for Knights of the Old Republic, that's for sure. Yeah, that's the game that made Bioware big, right? Yeah, I believe so. I, there might be something before it that I'm less familiar with. But I mean, I think that proves the point that this was the game that put them on the map. So I think that... My point with Knights of the Old Republic is that there's so many games that came out in, this was in 2003, by the way, and there were so many games that came out before then and then afterwards that were under this LucasArts umbrella. And it just, it, looking back on it seems to me to be this really special time in video game development where if you were a new developer or somebody who wanted to try something new, or you had a story that you wanted to tell, that you felt would fit into the world of Star Wars, there was a good chance you could make a game about it and tell the story that you wanted and have people engage with it in a way that you might not have had the chance to with a different property. Now, the way that you say it, it makes it seem like that's not the case anymore. I'm afraid not. So <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about our favorite uh, Empire. I have this this section in the in the notes is called the Empire pays cash. Ah, we're talking about EA. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, which Empire are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so many. Yep. Uh, we've talked about so many of them. No, in this case, it's it's the big one. Uh, it's Disney. So oh. yes, the the House of Mouse. So in 2012, Disney bought Lucasfilm and the Star Wars property. For $4 billion, which is another example of our favorite catchphrase on studying pixels, money has no meaning. <laughs> it's just an impossible amount of money that in retrospect, I mean, seems like pennies to buy something like Star Wars, but they bought it in 2012 and kind of ushered in a new era of storytelling with Star Wars. So I mentioned that prior to this, there was the expanded universe. When Disney bought Star Wars in 2012, 
they said, we're taking all of that and we're putting it in a box and we're taking a marker and we're writing not canon on all of those things. So all of these stories, comic books, different ideas that had come out of the expanded universe, they were kind of shuffled off and swept under the rug because they weren't official. Disney said, it's just the movies. It's a couple of TV shows. It's just these things that are going to be what Star Wars is. On the one hand, I understand that this would cause a huge fan outcry, which it did at the time. People were really, really completely befuddled when suddenly Disney bought Star Wars and they made all kinds of jokes about it, how it would basically now become a uh, like a cartoon for children. And yeah. at the same time, though, when I look at it as someone from the outside, it almost seems to me like, isn't that maybe at least one way to make things a little bit more accessible, that if you want to get into Star Wars, then Disney is going to say, okay, so then you basically have to engage with these things, and then you've seen everything that you have to care about when it comes to Star Wars. Everything else is kind of optional. Isn't that a way to make it more accessible and by virtue of that, potentially also more profitable for the future? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I will not sit here and pretend I don't know why they did it, because what you just described makes total sense to me. If I were... If I were looking, if I, first of all, if I had $4 billion <laughs> and, and I spent it on Star Wars, if I'm thinking about it from a business perspective, I'm thinking, what's the best way to get a return on investment? Well, we've had a ton of success with the Marvel movies and this was right after the Avengers had come out. And so this idea that there were a set number of movies that you had to see to understand what was going on in that universe was something that Disney had seen a lot of success with already. So I think it, what they did was they said, well, we should do that with Star Wars. And in order for us to do that, you know, with the Marvel movies, it's easy for us to say, just watch these movies. Yes, there's a bunch of comic books, but the movies are the only movies. <laughs> and so you can kind of follow along if you just see every new release. With Star Wars, though, there's such a huge history because of the expanded universe that they really did have to confine it to the films and a couple of the TV shows. And so while it did definitely generate a lot of fan outcry, I do think it was a step in making these movies not only more accessible, but in a weird way relevant again, because it was like, you have to watch everything to get up to date before the new movie comes out. Then you can follow things as they, as they are released. Yeah, that's exactly the concept, because if you want to Let's say you want to get into Spider-Man and you're not familiar with it at all. Then you can say, okay, so Spider-Man basically restarts every couple of years, like when it comes right. to the major films. So just watch the most recent ones. They have like nice visual effects and so on. Everyone has their own favorite Spider-Man. But you at least have to just like, you've got maybe one origin film that you can start with. And it's a fairly recent one because they always make a new one every like eight years or something. For every generation, there's a new one. Whereas if you say, I want to really get into Star Wars, then it's like, wait, let me take you back to the 1970s, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, Ooh, and, wow. and you know, it's much easier to say, let me take you back to the 1970s and show you six films that came out in 40 years, right? That's, that's a lot easier than saying, let me take you back to 1950 and have you read all of these different Spider-Man comics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And if, if you go into Star Wars, it's just intimidating how many characters there are and how many stories. And then you can't possibly, from a, a business perspective, you can't possibly say, okay, so the next Star Wars movie is going to tie into this thing that was released 
as a kind of short story and then turned into a visual novel by some kind of other by some kind of video game company because then nobody's going to get what's going on and they're going to be like what is this star wars thing but exactly. you need to make it excuse me you need to make it accessible for a new generation right and i think that was the goal and i think it succeeded and you know strangely enough right i i mean to play devil's advocate i think i I got into Star Wars when the prequels were coming out because I was a kid when they were coming out. And I only engaged with the films. I didn't really read all these comics and stuff all that much. But I do think that it's, you know, every couple of decades, there's a new Star Wars trilogy, I guess. And uh, that's what they want you to focus on. So I should make clear, they didn't scrub all of the expanded universe from existence, right? It's not like they removed everything. All of that is still available. It's just that they say, you only need to see the movies to understand what's going on. And the the immediate upshot of that was that the video game stories that were able to be told became super limited. So because we were only dealing with these films now, the stories that were sanctioned by Disney really had to take place in that time frame. So you mentioned Rogue One at the start of this. That's a film about getting the plans to destroy the Death Star. That is something that we know happened, right? So, okay, is there a story there? Yeah, let's, but we can assume what happened. Like, we know that the Death Star gets destroyed, so it's not totally new territory. And I think there was this feeling with games like the Battlefront remakes that game developers weren't really, they were on a really tight leash because they weren't able to tell these stories that they used to be able to tell in the LucasArts era because it had to tie into the films. There had to be this narrative cohesion. And we didn't get a whole lot of interesting Star Wars in the immediate aftermath of the buyout. Yeah, I, I also don't want to seem like I'm a basically corporate spokesperson for Disney because <laughs> I, it's not like I don't I understand why they made such a decision. But on the other hand, I do think that, of course, it's a great loss that all of this kind of creative potential gets funneled into like one mainline production process in which your creative freedom is significantly restricted and the result are such games like, yeah, the Star Wars Battlefront remakes that really only got a little bit of their appeal from the multiplayer, but mostly when it comes to the story, I don't know whether anyone really remembers the story mode of the Battlefront games. No, I think it was... It had something vaguely to do with again. It was like a it was like a teaser for the film. I think the next film that was coming out, mm. and I think that left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths, especially because it was it had the EA banner on it, the other Empire, and uh, there were a lot of issues surrounding it. But so it was it was kind of this fallow period for a while. But in 2018, a game called Jedi Fallen Order came out, and. I think it surprised a lot of people by how really good it was. And what I, what I liked about it is that it's a great example of using the kind of um, create, creative funneling that Disney had people do to their advantage. They took what information they were able to use from the universe and told a really compelling story about a character named Cal Kestis. So Cal Kestis was a young Jedi in training who lost his master 
during the infamous Order 66, which was the order to kill all the Jedi that the Emperor, the emperor uh, put out. And in Revenge of the Sith, the third prequel film, we see that happen, but it only happens in like three minutes because the point of the film is to see Darth Vader. You know, it's, it's to see Anakin turn to the dark side. And that's kind of a footnote in how that happened. But this story says, well, wait a minute. That would have a massive effect on the universe and how people would react to Jedi and how any of the survivors would feel. So it's this incredibly nuanced, beautiful story about this poor kid who has survivor's guilt. He feels like he let his master down. He feels like he killed his master by his inactivity. And it's a really compelling look at this young Jedi who believes in the Force, believes in the teachings of the Jedi, but who also recognizes that maybe we shouldn't rebuild the Jedi Order because whatever we did led to that order that killed all of my friends. <laughs> so maybe it's, be it's better to, as he says, trust in the Force and just hope that things will turn out for the best. And it's this great narrative about how to live with hope in a really dark time in this universe that's created in Star Wars. And I thought, I, re I played it recently to get ready for this episode, and I was blown away by how taken with it I was, because it was a very narrow look at something that happens in the, in the story that's part of the canon now, but it was so compelling, and the people putting it together clearly had a deep understanding of the themes of the Star Wars films. And I think it's just a great example of take, take a confined uh, story and make the most out of it. Yeah, Fallen Order satisfied such a profound craving amongst the Star Wars fan base that overlaps with people who love playing video games because for many years there has not been a proper story-focused Star Wars game, right? It was always like tie-ins and some races and some maybe some Lego games, but yeah. not this like proper high production value story-focused thing. And I think Jedi Fallen Order satisfied exactly that with the competence of Respawn Entertainment, by the way, that made the Titanfall games. So they were very, uh, very precise, very competent developers that basically jumped into this. And I think that has kind of changed the narrative a little bit, right? Because it has shifted things in a new direction. That's at least how I felt with the success of this uh, approach that Jedi Fallen Order took. I totally agree. And... I'm excited because I think maybe Jedi Fallen Order was kind of the spark that Disney needed to see that proved that these narrative-rich story games are not only profitable, but what people want to see in Star Wars. Because we're getting some future games, and the, <laughs> the weirdest one, we've talked about it before, Star Wars Eclipse, a David Cage production. <laughs> David, what is he doing with Star Wars? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, but does he know even... <laughs> I don't, uh, that's the question for the ages. That's a whole podcast unto itself. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know it. I mean, to me, that seems like a, a real leap, you know, to say, okay, David Cage, creator of, you know, Detroit Become Human and Beyond Two Souls and Heavy Rain. We want you to tell a Star Wars story that looks like it takes place kind of more in the Knights of the Old Republic era, um, not in the Skywalker time. So I... I think very little is known about it right now, but it looks really interesting. And I mean, 
the fact that it's a David Cage production alone tells me that there's going to be some weird stuff going on in that game. There's definitely going to be a conversation to be had about that one. Uh, the thing is that I've played all the Quantic Dream games, except for the very first one, which I think was Omicron Soul or something. Like it was, oh, yeah, that was Omicron. quite a while ago, the one before Heavy Rain. And uh, sorry, before Fahrenheit, actually, before, before the, yeah. the Indigo Prophecy. But uh, that it's going to be a curious combination. I, my biggest concern with that is that David Cage might, as he often does, take things too seriously. Take himself <laughs> and take the work that he does and the production of Star Wars Eclipse too seriously that he might try to make some kind of huge life altering experience with a tremendous moral impact that gives you a whole new angle of what it is to be human and eventually it's just a point where everyone is like yeah of course uh it's like can we move on now is, is that all yeah. that is there i that hope we're doing i hope that he doesn't take this too seriously because star wars also does tr benefit tremendously from a bit of humor and lightheartedness, as the recent Lego game has uh, definitely shown. Yes, Star Wars works best with its tongue in its cheek. And yes. I think that it makes the emotional mo moments that much more poignant. Um, and it also, it, it's a silly story. It is. It's a, I mean, people make this joke all the time. It's a, it's a story about space wizards for children. And that's true. That's what it is. But it can be very serious, but it also can be lighthearted. And the thing is, if you take out one side, then it's not balanced anymore. That's what I feel. Yes. And and <laughs> as Star Wars has taught us, all things must be balanced. So. Yes. All things. Star Wars and Aristotle. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of overlap, weirdly. But uh, <laughs> I think... So that was, that was my little uh, dive into these two eras that I see... Um, like I said, I, I, I've just scratched the surface with Star Wars games in my own personal gaming history. There's so many, but to me, it does seem to me that, uh, maybe we're heading back into a time where it won't be so rigid anymore and it'll be more of a, a cool property where people can explore their video game ideas and get a lot of people interested in Star Wars like the LucasArts era did. What do you think? Maybe... You can let us know your most influential Star Wars experience, especially if it relates to a video game. If you want to do that, then go to studyingpixels.com slash contact where you can reach out to us. And while you go to that website and type into the contact form, leave this podcast running because we're going to go ahead and do some side questing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As you know, in our side quests, we venture through the internet and bring you stories and articles that we find interesting and relevant. We also talk about our own impressions of video games we are currently playing, and you can find all the links that we reference in the show notes. Number one, Embracer Group purchases several Square Enix studios and IPs. Yes, throughout this last week, Square Enix became a whole lot lighter. <laughs> Uh, they are, of course, very well known for their high-profile Japanese titles such as Final Fantasy, Kingdom Hearts, and Dragon Quest. But over the years, they've become a much bigger publisher. They've made a huge push into the Western market by engaging with brands such as Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, Legacy of Kane, Thief, and many more. Well, some of them more commercially successful than others. I think a big issue for Square Enix always was that to even Tomb Raider and most of the time also Hitman kind of underperformed. They were always behind their expectations. Mm. And that is one of the primary reasons why they sold these studios and IPs to the Embracer Group AB. That's the full name. That is the parent company of THQ Nordic. It is basically, if you've never heard of it, it's an, a conglomerate of video game companies held together by under this umbrella company yeah. though they are not really all that creatively involved as far as i could tell like they are not a name it's not like oh this is a an embracer group game that's not really <laughs> the case <laughs> yeah i i think i only know them because they i think they saved darksiders because of with thq nordic uh, because yeah. that, that game was defunct and then it came back with Darksiders 3 under the THQ Nordic label. And I think that was Embracer AB Group's doing, if I remember. Yeah, they're actually, they're, they were pretty big before and mm -hmm. now they are even bigger. They're actually amongst the biggest publishers, even though one of the least known ones. And one of the reasons why they had such a growth spurt now is because they purchased titles such as Tomb Raider, DSX, Legacy of Kane, Thief, and many more 50-plus back catalog games for around 300 million US dollars, which is 
relatively little considering the numbers that we usually throw around when it comes to studio and publisher acquisitions. Right. 500 usually, billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's usually just fantasy numbers, but 300 million is even feasible to a certain degree. It was very cheap for Embracer Group in comparison, especially if you consider that these 300 million, they also include about 1,100 studio employees, which will be taken over, including high-profile studios such as Crystal Dynamics, who made Tomb Raider, um, and Eidos Montreal that made DSX, right? So the question that is naturally raised in that context is, now what's going to happen with these games and IPs? What's going to happen with Tomb Raider, for example? And it seems that Embracer Group is determined to continue these high-profile series. They say in their press release, quote, The acquisition brings a compelling pipeline of new installments from beloved franchises and original IPs, including a new Tomb Raider game, end quote. And this might actually work favorably for Crystal Dynamics, because the thing is that, as I said, under the Embracer Group umbrella, these studios largely work independently. So as long Mm. as they make money, as long as they're good business, basically, Embracer Group apparently doesn't get too involved in the timeline and the schedule and in the actual creative matters. And Square Enix kind of always has. They always put pressure on Crystal Dynamics to uh, like achieve certain goals. And uh, yeah, it seems that it might even be a liberating move for these particular studios. I watched a great video. It's very long, uh, but it's a it's a really great deep dive into... Deus Ex Human Revolution by the YouTuber H Bomber Guy. And he talks mm. about how IDOS Montreal was bought by Square Enix. And the production cycle for Deus Ex Human Revolution was absolutely insane in the sense that Square Enix was micromanaging down to every little detail. So I could definitely see maybe this will free them up to have a little bit more productive freedom. <laughs> as they're as they're going yeah. through their games and making them their own which is exciting for the studio it might be good mm. for embracer group is it of course good because they made a tremendous step forward when it comes to their status in the video game industry mm. when it comes to square enix however i think there is legitimate reason to be concerned about the direction that they're moving into because yeah they have purchased these studios in order to make it big in the west they didn't quite achieve that goal, so now they let them go and they, they sold off quite a few. They've also, they've kept some of them, like Life is Strange, for example, and Just Cause. Those are still IPs that are that owned by Square Enix. But it seems to me like they are maybe reorienting themselves a little bit. They have been very successful Wait, I shouldn't say very successful. I should say moderately successful with the recent push into the Marvel direction. Mm. Because, yeah, they have made uh, Marvel's Avengers, which was uh, an absolute disaster creatively Mm. as well as economically. Yep. And they made the Guardians of the Galaxy, which is not so much a creative disaster, but... Yeah, a little more well-received, right? Yeah, it's quite quite well-received, actually. It seems super interesting but also didn't reach the kind of goals that it was supposed to reach. It was not as successful as Square Enix hoped. 
that it would be. That seems to be uh, like a consistent problem with Square Enix, that the expectations when it comes to the Western market are just a little bit above and beyond, you know? They are yeah. not reasonable. Well, I think this this news kind of makes me think that Square Enix is kind of a niche company. The games that I have a lot of respect for them with are these JRPGs. You know, you mentioned Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, Kingdom Hearts, but games like Nier as well. I mean, these are games that I think fit their reputation really well. And so... I mean, it may be the case that they're not the gigantic video game developer that they thought they were, <laughs> and they're more the Final Fantasy guys, and there's nothing wrong with that. With that, there's nothing wrong. And I also think that their strength is really Japanese-focused games, and mm. I think that's where they're best at. However, it seems like they want to do something different. They mm. said in their own press release on the matter, quote, the transaction enables the launch of new businesses by moving forward with investments in fields including blockchain, AI, and the cloud, end quote. So the concern that is being discussed at the moment is that Square Enix has been for the last couple of years already pushing in the direction of, you know, blockchain gaming, NFT gaming, and such things, and that they might want to go further in that direction and that this might not be a good move especially at the moment where we have to see that nfts are a huge gamble so far the attempts that have been made to properly integrate it into the domain of games has not been very well received like it seems that in recent months the interest regarding nfts is actually going down there's not yeah. that much discussion anymore i don't doubt that it will come back in some form but Maybe not as the primary thing, not as the new thing about video games. Maybe this was just a false promise. And Square Enix has just basically shelled out a big part of itself with such high-profile titles like Tomb Raider, DSX, and so on. Hitman before that as well. They let, them, they let IO Interactive go as well. Basically letting them go in favor of going into the direction of NFT gaming. I'm not sure whether that is a good idea, honestly. I don't think so. And I don't, I don't know this. I'll have to look into it and I could probably bring it up in a future episode, but I think realistically their success in the blockchain and NFT space would come down to how well would that work in Japan? Because yeah. there's a lot of interest in the West on, on NFTs and crypto and the blockchain, but I don't know how popular it is in Japan. I know that, you know, Bitcoin was created by that guy, Satoshi, but other than that, I don't know what the the market looks like there. And I think Square Enix is such a Japan-centric company that has a lot of its success in the Japanese market that I think that would be a big factor in this. And I just, I don't know, I get the feeling that as, as much as it's waned here or in Germany or in Europe, wherever, I feel like, I, how big is it there? <laughs> How big is it in their market? I don't know. How big is it there? And how big is it going to be in five years yeah, all yeah. over the world? You know, because is it just, is it a thing that really makes a difference? Or is it just something that might become a gimmick of, especially like live service games or MMORPGs and such things mm. that has no significant, I can't imagine what the significance would be of NFTs 
in you know story focused single player games it just could in my mind only become a nuisance <laughs> i know <laughs> um, unless they're making a push into the online space with final fantasy 14 and games like that i i mean i potentially can't, maybe but hmm. yeah uh, apart from kind of microtransaction-y kind of things i don't know how much this is going to pay off for them <laughs> in the long run well so this this transfer is expected to close fully between july and september this year and i've got a little bit of a suggestion because we just got a little bit into the subject of nfts mm. and i know we wanted to speak about it more on the show i was wondering and this is really something that spontaneously just came to me dan should we maybe try and jump into some nft games and talk about them on the show and basically like do a small like review impressions of nft games do you think that's a possibility yeah we should i think it'll be an interesting blip in history if nothing else right either it's it's going to expand and it's here to stay or what a weird time to be alive (laughs) it'll be fun Uh, to look into it we we can talk about that off air whether we find a Mm. find the time to do that and whether it actually costs money because i think you need to purchase nfts to play an nft game right i suppose you have to actually buy money you have to buy into yeah, these you games might, you might have to you have to uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll look into that we'll look into that yeah <laughs> and then yeah. make a decision that i don't want to buy like i don't want to pay like 20 dollars for like a an image yeah and then have that be your avatar for the rest of time in the, yeah in the metascape <laughs> that we all live in um, well th- before we get off this this subject i have to ask you do you think that there's validity to the rumors that sony will be purchasing square enix i i'm not i I don't know honestly everything that i would say would be conjecture Mm. Mm, i personally think it would be a power move because the thing is that microsoft has made it so big and has made so many acquisitions that sony has to buckle up in some form and one way they could buckle up is to basically double down on the japanese market and yeah really strengthen that side of their business i think it's a possibility but um i don't know anything more than that what what are your thoughts i have i have a feeling that and again as you said this is all conjecture right but i do think that square enix is such a strong japanese brand and in a way like getting rid of these certain ips only strengthens that and so that might be uh, an interesting bartering chip if Sony were looking to purchase, you know, if if if, if <laughs> different studios are vying for Sony's attention, I could see Square Enix saying, we're the JRPG guys, don't you want us? <laughs> but I don't yeah. know. We're seeing so much of horizontal integration at yeah. the moment, though. So many companies being bought, so many smaller businesses being bought up by bigger businesses. And I do think this is something that we definitely have to keep an eye on on Mm. the effects that that also has on video game culture as a whole yeah absolutely number two number two i have a fun little i guess human interest piece i I don't know how you'd call it but uh the video game hall of fame (laughs) so this is something that popped up on my radar uh because of the games that i was playing this week which i'll get into shortly here but Um, the strong national museum of play up in Rochester, New York has their, um, video game hall of fame. And in the 2022 class, they have inducted the legend of Zelda Ocarina of time, Miss Pac-Man and Sid Meier's civilization. So if you're like me, you're wondering, uh, 
Ocarina of Time and Miss Pac-Man and Civilization just got into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Why? I, they should have long <laughs> since been in that. So this is, this is a relatively new Hall of Fame. I think it's only about eight years old or so. So this is, uh, this is a new, new thing that the uh, Museum of Play is doing up in Rochester, New York, relatively speaking. But their reasoning, of course, is that all three of these games have had such a strong and lasting influence on their respective genres and video games as a whole that they deserve to be lauded for it. Um, and I, th I think that one of the things that they bring up in this uh, Kotaku article, which talks about it by Ryan Gilliam, it, or I'm sorry, Polygon, Polygon article by Ryan Gilliam, is that Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time has such a uh, profound impact on video games as a whole, but something like Sid Meier's Civilization is praised and deserves to be in there because it's a game that uh, focuses on creation and not destruction necessarily. Ah, and I thought that that was a cool little footnote um, and reason for why they've put it in there. So as fun as it is to give Gandhi nukes in later games, I do like the <laughs> idea of it. <laughs> it's uh, a game focused on building things up. So fun little shout out for games that we've all uh, loved for a very long time, getting their, their day in the sun <laughs> in an official hall of fame. I also want to briefly honor a game in number three. Briefly taking a look at my current adventure in the lands between. Uh, this is just going to be something that I bring up occasionally because, yes, I'm still playing Elden Ring after <laughs> now, I think, 130 hours I'm in and I'm still not nearly done with this. Yeah. It's a huge game. <laughs> it is a huge game. I think, I think 130 hours is like on the lower side of the average for people it's a huge mm. huge game <laughs> mm -hmm. it takes a long time and yep. i just recently made a decision actually this morning and that is that i spent so much time in the character editor <laughs> to make uh to try and recreate myself uh, in this game which i completely failed to do but still, I have a kind of identification with my character, and I have a helmet that is so ugly that most of the helmets in this game are so ugly that I'm going without now. Yeah. I'm going without a helmet in Elden Ring. It's time. The world shall see my face. <laughs> well, it's such a sophisticated character editor, too. And I, I feel like it happened in Dark Souls 3 as well, where you get all these beautiful slider options, and you can... I mean, you spend an hour or two creating your character and then you just pop on a helmet for the entirety of the game and you don't get to see it. That's just too much of a shame. But I, I wonder whether it might even be intentional that in Elden Ring you have this kind of concept that you have a an equipment load, right? And mm. it doesn't matter what you equip, everything will kind of count towards that load. And if it reaches a certain threshold, then you have like a, a, med, a middle... Um, Roll. medium equipment load yeah. or a, a heavy equipment load and that will make it slow you down being yeah. heavy uh, so i took off my helmet and instead i equipped more heavy armor and you know gloves and, and boots and i think that that might even be intentional that it's just an option so that you can see your character's face and you can basically just redistribute the equipment load yeah i think so i i I've gotten to the point where that's how I play too. 
with without a helmet. There are some that are kind of cool, like in the later game, but a lot of them are just silly, and they a lot of them are really silly, like the uh, yeah the, the sorcerers ones. <laughs> Those are <laughs> the big stone faces. Um, yeah, but I think yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, you spend a lot of time on your character. It's nice to see them. Yeah, and I wanted to do that, and so now I'm running around without a helmet, and I'm diving into the depths of volcano mana to see whether the lava leaves any sprinkles on my face. Ah, <laughs> uh, volcano manor, with our friend Raya and all the other uh, crazy weirdos living there. <laughs> mm. Ah, it's a beautiful video game. Mm. I'm looking forward to dive further into it. I'm going to keep reporting from my adventures from the lands between number four. What have you brought? Yes, my game impressions. So something we talked about uh, a while ago now, the Nintendo Switch Online Expansion Pack. That uh, oh. Yes, the subscription service um, that allows you to play a very select few Nintendo 64 games, as well as some Sega Genesis games. So I had played the, uh, the NES and the SNES Switch Online. Um, I had a lot of fun with Earthbound, that that port was really nice on uh, the switch online. And so I had kind of a, a busy week at work, so I didn't have too much time to uh, devote my brain to a brand new video game. So I thought, you know, it'd be nice to play Ocarina of Time. It just got inducted into the hall of fame after all. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. To honor it. I wanted to see it and what it looked like. I did. I don't know if this is an ongoing promotion. I got the, it's usually $50 to get the expansion pack. I got it for $34. There was a, a bit of a, um, a deal going on. So I did that. And for what I paid, I do feel like it was worth it because Ocarina of Time runs really well. I think they fixed any of the bugs that people were seeing. Um, I, I was happy it. to hear that. Yeah. That finally, I mean, I know that there was a lot, there were a lot of controversies around this at launch. Yeah. And I'm happy to hear that they might have fixed something and basically stuck with it, improved it so that now it might be worth the money. It seems like it. And I, yeah, so I played Ocarina of Time. That ran fine. Majora's Mask seemed to run fine too. Um, I didn't play Super Mario 64 because I have the All-Stars uh, port. So I, I didn't get into that. But um, F-Zero, Star Fox, they all played really nicely and it was fun to play it on the handheld switch and i would say as much fun as i had with those and as well as they ran uh i must confess i had more fun on the sega genesis <laughs> ports yeah yeah uh sonic 2 was so much fun to play on the switch and uh golden axe was a lot of fun too so all these classic games there's not a lot of them right that's the one thing i would say is that uh i wish there were more games that were available on every switch online uh selection because nes snes genesis and n64 they have at most two dozen each and i know the n64 yeah. has way less than that so some good selection i mean the zelda games there's paper mario is on there too so a lot of good games but i would like to see more that being said, for the $34 I paid for it, I'm pretty pleased with it. I don't know that I would pay 50 but if you can catch that deal, it's worth it. Now, you had me at Paper Mario. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I, haven't... I, I really loved that game. It was That was yeah. amazing. And I could imagine, especially because Paper Mario is 
uh, turn-based game, right? And yes. so you have all the time in the world to explore, and then you do your turn-based fighting, and it's like a nice little story that you get told. It's actually really fun, and that's why I think uh, it's an ideal game to be played on the go. Yeah, I I would agree. I think uh, some good... It's a good selection of games on the go. Um, I just wish that... Uh, there were a few more of them. Although now that I think about it, I don't know which other ones I would like. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> Are there but any other? I know. Even. <laughs> the, the N64's library is so sparse. Um, but Luigi's I, Mansion. No, wait, that was the GameCube. GameCube. Yeah. Ah, uh, that was the so, GameCube. Yeah. I, I, I think uh, the other, the thing that I have not, dived into yet are the dlcs that you get access to as well the mario kart tracks the animal crossing dlc uh i didn't really play animal crossing so that's the thing that we brought up before is that that's kind of nice that they're adding these expand these uh dlcs included with that price but if you're not playing the game it's not it's kind of pointless so yeah, yeah. they're not really the big selling points that's why i found it befuddling from the very beginning that they placed so much emphasis on this. I do understand that it was worth it in the case of Animal Crossing, where yeah. they basically brought this to also like bring back to life to the, at that point, slightly receding numbers of players in Animal Crossing. And I think it is probably really worth it for Mario Kart, where you get a whole mm. lot of like tracks. Or is that, are these tracks generally free? No, I think it's a, it's a lot of content in that that dlc and i don't think it's free there's a lot of stuff right yeah it's it's yeah. a lot of stuff from what i i mean it was like i think it's a couple gigabytes <laughs> looking at the downloads so it's um yeah i think i mean if you're playing those games that might add some some benefit to that cost um the, my biggest thing was i was glad to see that when i was playing it handheld ocarina of time especially it looked fine it it, it ran okay there weren't the bugs that twitter was posting all over the place back when it came out so if that's what's been keeping you from it and you're fine with the price point of the 50 dollars subscription per year i would say you don't have to be worried it seems like they've fixed that ah wonderful next time i'm just going to briefly go in our episodes sheet because i think we've got a reading episode coming up don't we mm, yes Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Maybe we can announce that already. So, uh, of course, when we announce an episode for the next week, that always means that's our plan at the moment. It might still be that something huge happens. Let's say Sony suddenly acquires Square Enix. <laughs> Imagine if that would happen now. That would be crazy. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, and then we basically push it back. But we plan on doing another reading next week. And that will be a reading of an older article revolving around the matter of violence in video games. And it's David I. Waddington, published in 2006, writing about locating the wrongness in ultra-violent video games. Uh, I'll link that up in the show notes just in case that you might want to read along and submit questions and thoughts on that particular article because we're going to discuss that next week. And in case you don't have the time or you don't want to read along, that's absolutely no problem. Don't worry. Still come by next week because you don't have to have read the article in order to follow our conversation. We're going to break it up in such a way that you'll find it enjoyable still. We promise. At that, thank you so very much for listening. 
If you want to reach out, then you can head over to studyingpixels.com slash contact. We're looking forward to hear from you. Enjoy the rest of your day and talk next week. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.